It's good to be here this morning. My name is Robert Frazier. If we haven't met, uh, make sure to say hello on your way out. But it's, it's good to be here. It's good to have a local sermon. Most weeks we have our sermon from Lexington, so it's good to be together. Jumping into Isaiah 53 today. When you look out across history, and, and the ancient world in particular, there's, there's one piece that's really hard to miss. The names that we know from those eras, they are the strongest of the strong. The great men that conquered empires, killed their rivals, punished their enemies, and laid them low. History is certainly written by the victors and by their loyal subjects. Before the last 70 years, international boundaries where our countries were demarked, before 70 years ago, they were nearly constantly in flux for millennia. Whoever had the strength militarily to move, they would take places and people and resources and they would turn them in to loyal subjects, tax-paying subjects, as, as a matter of fact. This was the business plan of the richest people in the world for pretty much all of human history. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians again, the Macedonians and the Greeks, the Romans, the northern tribes of the Goths, the Celts, and the Visigoths the Moors, the Mongols, the Persians, the Franks, the Spaniards, the Brits, the Austro-Hungarians, the Nazis, the Russians, and the Americans. Empires built and lost at the hand of the sword, wielded by strong men. There's been one unchanging rule in all of human history. The powerful get what they want, and the rest try to survive. And millions die for tax revenue and the vanity of kings and emperors. You see, the same guys ruling the great powers of history, they're the, they're the same guys that are ruling our world today and, and even are, are running for the president of this democratic empire that we have. And I'm sure that many of you even see this same principle at play in your life today. The strong, outspoken personality in the office, well, they get what they want and eventually they work their way into a leadership position and make the rest of you miserable. That business down the street, they bully you into closing your doors. That lawyer that threatens to sue you instead of paying the bill for the work they've done on your house. The family member that uses verbal and emotional abuse and manipulation to make you want to alienate yourself from the family. Maybe even in your marriage, the strong one lords over the weak. Maybe it's even in your family with your older brother or your younger sister. The schoolyard is the first place where many of us learn the reality of the world. Certainly there's that teacher, that playground monitor, who's supposed to watch out for the weak and the vulnerable. This week, my niece came home, she's in first grade, and she told my sister-in-law, Mom, did you know that snitches get stitches? First grade, they're learning the reality of our world, that the strong get what they want. And all of that, all of that sounds like a good thing if you're powerful, if you're the person who gets what they want. But for most of us, unless we're the Donald, we don't have the ego to take control of every room that we enter. We have weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and sometimes we're just too tired to assert ourselves. But maybe there's another way where our vulnerabilities don't leave us so darn vulnerable. Here we are spending 40 weeks together every Sunday diving into the life of a peasant who was poor, homeless, never ruled a kingdom, 
never held office or position, never even won a spot on a village council, who died as a common criminal at the hands of an emperor's army, naked, spit on, despised and rejected by his own people, abandoned by his closest friends. Take a second and think about that real quick. In a world where power is our only true currency, this is the guy that you chose to follow. You put your faith in a loser. You organize your life around a peasant carpenter who was so plain looking that in the Bible they didn't even know how to tell you what he looked like. And you're not alone. We're not alone. We're not the only ones who, who backed this historical loser. Nearly two billion people on the planet today pledge their allegiance to this peasant carpenter from Nazareth. There must be something different about the kingdom that he leads. And it must be compelling, and maybe it means something that his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. We've been making our way through the Old Testament, uh, the history of the people of Israel, and we're looking at some of the text where uh, we see these oracles. And this oracle means it, it's a future prophecy, something that's going to happen about Jesus. And we're seeing what people said about him before he even existed. Now, for some of you, you're new to this whole Bible thing. You're new to church, and you're just kind of jumping back in. And honestly, it might be kind of hard to swallow some of this stuff where we're looking back hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus was born and we're saying this is what was written about him. If you're struggling with that today and just for today, I, I just want to ask you to set, set aside your skepticism and take a look at the words of Isaiah that were written 700 years before Jesus roamed the earth. And I think that's going to help you understand Jesus in a new light. And it, it might even help you understand that God is doing something different than we've ever seen. Today we're going to be in this really important passage. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet in Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel, and it was a weak and divided kingdom. They had been strong under David and Solomon, and then Solomon's kids split it up into these two kingdoms because they were warring. And uh, God was speaking through the prophets of the time, and he was trying to get them to turn back and follow him. But really they were too late. The northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom was taken by the Babylonians, ancient empires that fought back and forth for the supremacy of the Middle East through the late Bronze Age. But God wasn't done with Israel. Even though he had let them be overrun and taken and their country ceased to be its own country, God was doing something in the midst of it. He was, he was doing something that they weren't expecting. Israel was looking for a strong leader, a ruler or king that was going to be a savior, a strong man that would come and rule with justice and a strong hand that would throw off their oppressors and break the bond of slavery that, had been, that they had been subjected to for almost 100 years. But Isaiah had this oracle, this vision from God of what the future holds, and it's, it's really, really good news, but... It's unexpected news, confusing even. Instead of a strong man king, God has something completely different in mind. So one thing to know about this passage before we jump in, it has three things that it's talking about all at the same time. So, so when we're reading this, you need to see that it's speaking about, first, um, it's talking about this leader who's going to lead Israel out of captivity. 
This actually happens a couple hundred years after the captivity. There's a leader who looks like this, okay? It's also talking about Israel, the whole country, and their place in God's plan to redeem the world, okay? The third thing you're gonna realize is that this passage is about Jesus. You're gonna hear the words and you're gonna go, oh my goodness, that is the story that we read. That is Luke 15. That is about the Messiah that was to come. So let's jump in. It's a long reading, but I'm telling you, it's, it's really worth it. So let's do it. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should seek him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears are silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, now a few of those verses are going to feel really familiar to you. And maybe even those of you who are new to church, if you've gone to Easter or Christmas, this is a passage that gets quoted a bunch both of those times during the year. We're going to talk about those. But first we need to get around what was going on in Israel's heads when they heard this word from God. Your jaws should be on the floor if you're really getting what Israel was hearing. Isaiah is saying this radical thing, that God's plan is to redeem his people through a suffering servant, a man despised who's nothing to look at, and that God's plan is to crush him so that he suffers, and in his suffering, he will pay for the wrongdoings of the people. And that is in the face of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. 
God's going to redeem his people with a crushed, suffering servant, a sad man of many sorrows. Israel's like, really, God? (laughs) This is your plan. We just saw the Assyrians roll through the northern kingdom like a hot knife through butter. And we've seen what Nebuchadnezzar and his crazy guys are doing with Babylon and the kingdoms of the east. And your answer is a crushed, sad man. Someone can't, people can't even look at the guy. It, it says this, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him with low esteem. That's God's plan? No wonder Isaiah's audience didn't listen to him. Even if it was from God, maybe God wasn't quite what he used to be. Maybe they thought it, he was kind of like that great uncle that you love, but now when you talk to him, every conversation divulges into how America is being ruined by the Fed. You know that, that great uncle? It w- if this was God's plan, salvation through a weak, broken man, maybe we're on our own in this. Maybe God's not there and he really doesn't care about us. So, so I can see on your faces that you're not quite as floored by this as the Israelites were. I, I can tell that your jaws just haven't dropped quite enough. I think I know why that is. We all know how the story works out. You've skipped ahead three millennia and you know how stuff works out for the Israelites how a tiny clan, they reestablished themselves in Palestine for several hundred years. We we know how, as a people, the Jews even survived to create a modern nation state in the 20th century. They're They're not destroyed. You know how the story of Jesus fulfills this and overcomes death, shame, sin, and triumph on Easter. You've seen the weak triumph in the face of incredible odds, Actually, most, most movies are about that story. Some weak person doesn't have what it takes, and yet they triumph anyways. This is our story. You saw throughout history that even through the vicious persecutions of the first three centuries, Christianity grew to be like one-third of the Roman Empire before it was even legal to be Christian. You watched Gandhi take down the British Empire through nonviolent resistance and hunger strikes. You watch Martin Luther King Jr. bring down the Jim Crow South to its knees through his own and other sacrifice and peaceful demonstration. You watch the students in Tiananmen Square show their power through weakness by staring down tanks in peaceful demonstration and giving their lives to bring reforms in a country that are still being felt 25 years later. You watch the church in communist China after the Boxer Rebellion grow from a handful of underground house churches to 100 million Christ followers in 2015. God was showing that the way of the future was different than the barbarian past. 3,000 years before the the faddish, peacenik liberalism of the 20th century that said, you know, peace is the answer, God was saying that way before through the suffering of his servant leader in Isaiah 53. I even read this week a Harvard Business Review article They said that humble leaders that lead by example get better results in their businesses in productivity and profitability than leaders that are proud and serve themselves. So even Harvard Business School is saying that Jesus' methods have gone mainstream. God's ridiculous plan to save the world from the weak, it's become how we see everything. 
you see what's really going on here in Isaiah 53 is that God is saying that power is a fraud. It never delivers. And the more powerful you are, the more vulnerable you are. We believe some lies about power still. We think that power in the form of wealth and position, that it can be our savior. We believe that if we just had a little more money, a little more purchasing power, we could be saved from financial pressure. We think that a position of power in our work, in the world, would give us freedom to pursue our vision for our lives. We think that if we put together enough followers, bundle enough contributions, make a big enough super PAC, our righteous vision for our people will be realized if we get our guy into office, taking back the Senate, taking back the House, taking back the White House. We think that power is gonna give us what we're looking for. We still believe it's gonna give us safety, security, freedom, and peace. Israel was convinced of the same thing. They thought that the second coming of King David would be a great military leader that would scare off their neighbors and bring the wealth of the empire of Solomon back. And and once they were rich and powerful again, the world would look at Israel and they'd say, how great is their God? We should bow before their God because he has made them into a great people. See, Isaiah's dashing their dreams. He's killing their idol of power, position, and wealth. The people weren't happy at the time. God's plan is radical. He wants to do it in such a way that people can't think that they did it on their own. We're a proud people. We look at the good things happening in our lives, and we want to believe that it's because we deserve it because we're righteous people, that we've mastered the secrets of this world, and that God may have helped a little bit, but that this was my thing. I did it on my own. But God's way is way, way different. His plan was to come as a man, born a peasant to a poor family, to grow up as a carpenter in a backwoods town 100 miles from the nearest city. His great plan is to show the world that he is God through his miracles, that he has power over the weather and power over sickness and death, power over even the demons. And when a massive crowd start following him and they try to crown him as the king to overthrow their Roman oppressors, this is God's plan. He orchestrates it so that he's arrested and that he's put on trial on trumped up charges for blasphemy. And then, like a sheep led to the slaughter, He does not speak on his own defense. He allows himself to be crushed by the Romans on behalf of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And as he dies, he takes on all the sin of the world. He even forgives those who kill him for their ignorance. God the Father turns his back on Jesus on the cross because he's forsaken for our sins that he's taken on. He suffers an agonizing death that includes being turned away from his father. You see, power's a fraud. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, they thought that the power of their mob was enough to kill Jesus, to ensure their religious authority for the future. The Roman governor thought that the use of the power of execution would keep the peace in Jerusalem. Satan thought that if he killed God in human form, he would win the day. But the suffering servant showed that power was a fraud. 
the temple was still destroyed in 70 AD and it was never rebuilt. The Sanhedrin as the rulers and the, the gatekeepers to God would never reform. The Roman Empire couldn't contain Jesus or his followers from penetrating the whole empire and the Roman Empire was torn apart by pretty weak Mongol hordes out of Europe. Jesus died, but death could not hold him. Hell could not hold him. God's suffering servant overcame death, rose on the third day, and only, not only forgave our sin, but made us right before God so that we could experience a loving, intimate relationship with God. The suffering servant exposes power for the fraud that it is. The heir to the throne of David, he's not gonna establish an earthly kingdom that relies on armies and chariots and horses and swords because all those things are temporary. No empire lasts forever and another strong man will always come along and take away what you have. Instead, the Messiah the chosen one came and showed that the way of God was the way through humility. Probably almost all of us have seen this photo of a student standing before a tank in Tiananmen Square. He looks foolish to the rulers and the party elites. But through his sacrifice, he made one thing absolutely clear. No matter how much a, pay, a, a state tries to exert its power through control and policing, they couldn't stop a man from giving his life to make a statement. When a million-man army has to kill a peaceful protester, an unarmed 19-year-old, maybe the power of the party is not as secure as you'd want to think. In Birmingham, if Birmingham has to hold a peaceful a group of peaceful protesters in prison like Martin Luther King Jr., maybe they don't have as much control as they thought. If the Brits have to jail a 90-pound starving Indian cleric, maybe things are crumbling faster than they thought. If, if the Romans have to kill an itinerant preacher to control the peace, maybe they aren't really that strong. God's kingdom has this reverse logic that threatens the ancient ways of power and empire. And that suffering servant, through giving his life as a ransom for many, he sparked a movement. A movement that includes billions of people and has outlasted every empire and it spans every nation of the earth. A movement that can transform drug dealers and hedge fund managers, prostitutes and soccer moms into a global family that performs a majority of the humanitarian work in our world. A force so powerful in its weakness that it turned a self-consumed knucklehead like me into an ambassador for his kingdom. A force that turned many of you from addicts and users, non-religious and anti-religious, lapsed Catholics and practicing pagans, sinners and Pharisees into following this suffering servant. Maybe you're on that journey right now to rediscover this Jesus and his, his countercultural methods. So what does this all mean for us? Well, a couple of things. First, we, we learned a lot about how God's kingdom is different and a whole lot more powerful than the strongest armies. That power is not absolute. 
and that the suffering servant exposes power for the fraud that it is. The second, this is the bad news. You ready for it? Just like Jesus' suffering for the sake of others produced eternal life in, the, in his kingdom for us, when we suffer in service for others, we're following Jesus' kingdom ways. And people's sacrifices, people's lives, people's lives are transformed because we suffer for them and in their place. I didn't, you didn't think this was all gonna be good news, right? <laughs> that's, that's not good news. The kingdom you're following, the king that you follow, doesn't rely on power, position, authority, money, and strength to get its way. It relies on self-sacrifice for the sake of those who are far from God. When we become a part of this new reverse kingdom where the weak are strong and the strong are frauds, it means that we look a whole lot more like his kingdom and less like this world. We start to prefer and to care for the weak because that's what God did. We start to purposely suffer to serve those around us. We, we give up our own comfort to protect and to care for the people in our lives. And through that, they're gonna see the, the power and the goodness of God's kingdom. We start to see and believe that this whole life is not about us. It's about a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom where power fades and kingdoms fall, emperors die and dynasties disappear, but the despised God-man, the weakest king still lives, still rules, and his kingdom has no end. Let's pray together. Lord God, you're kind of crazy. Why, why this? Why do things so radically different than we imagine? God, we see the goodness and we see the power in it because we've seen you transform lives. We've seen you take down empires and establish your kingdom on every, every part of this planet. And God, we wanna be a part of that. We want to bring hope to the hopeless. We, we want to give our lives so that our suffering has meaning and so that people experience you. God, help us to do that. Help us to see you in the midst of all these things that you've called us to. Help us to give ourselves up. And God, for those that are still struggling with what this all means, I, I pray you give some, some understanding and wisdom to them that they saw you a little more clearly in what you're about today. In your name we pray, amen.